Hello. Hi, everyone. Welcome to issue six of Scout and Birdie. Sunburnt. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. So we've been doing Scout and Birdie for now. This is our sixth month doing it. So we chose Sunburnt um, to be kind of a reflective issue. To reflect on what's been challenging throughout starting Scout and Birdie um, and keeping it going for six months so far, uh, what's been exciting, what we've learned from when we've cried, mostly <laughs> me. <laughs> and so this issue, we're going to be doing some more interviews with our artists so you can get a little bit more insight into what their process is and what their big challenges are as well. So what do you think, Anna, your biggest challenge has been during this whole process? Uh, okay, I think my biggest challenge in Scout and Birdie is that my pieces have just been stirring up some controversy. <laughs> they have. They really have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you are the only person who's ever had people say, like, could you take that down or could you change it? Which has been, like, a learning experience, like... You know, I think because your style is much more blunt and personal, um, it like makes you much more relatable. Stories are more engaging that way when they're so personal. But for me, when I write, I write in kind of more a, a distanced way, I guess. So I like rarely use names in my pieces. And so it's kind of like a whole different ball game for you <laughs> yeah yeah I've gotten in these six months I've gotten really good at thinking of names that remind me of the actual person's name but aren't <laughs> their name um <laughs> this one has got some gems so <laughs> Nerman <laughs> Nerman is a great one a really good name and honestly like not that far off from the original name so not really not pretty um, accurate actually <laughs> stay tuned for some more Nerman information um, Jen, what do you think your biggest challenge of these six months has been? I would say probably just balancing doing the website and the graphic design and all of the the technical stuff um, and editing the podcast and doing all of that um, is really like a, a new challenge for me. I've done like some sound design and things like that in the past, but editing a podcast with so many moving parts and like different people going on, it's like coordinating their schedules, <laughs> getting it all recorded, making sure everything's good on the website, all the links work, all of like it's all that like logistical stuff and that and having an, another full-time job <laughs> and doing like the grant writing and things like that on the side keep me really busy. Yeah, Jen rarely sleeps, honestly. <laughs> I don't know how she's awake right now and how she looks so lovely every time she goes out in the world. Um, she is 100% the all things technical here at Scout and Birdie because I can't figure out anything in technology. I mean, it's impressive. Like just now, I couldn't figure out how to get the words on my like laptop to be bigger, and Jen had to show me how to like. That was a pretty simple control one. Control plus, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So honestly, if without Jen, Scout and Birdie would be like handwritten <laughs> and like pictures uploaded to maybe an Instagram account, like would be all that I could handle. 
I really enjoy doing all of the editing and stuff, but definitely the day that the issue comes out is not a good day to see me because most likely I've been up all night and look like the witch that I am on the inside. <laughs> Traumatic. <laughs> I'm very shriveled up on the day after the issue comes out and usually pretty close to falling asleep at work standing up yeah normally Jen will send me like a walkie-talkie message the way we communicate with each other is in walkie-talkie form um and Jen will send me a message uh that is like something like okay hello it's up check it out how does it look I'm going to sleep I'm going to sleep for an hour and then I gotta go to work and I'm like wow, it's amazing. It sounds so great. It looks so good. And she's like, "Uh Mm uh-huh, goodbye. (laughs) Yeah, so that has been challenging, but I think whenever I look through the Meet the Artist page um, and I realize that we have now 34 artists who have contributed to Scout and Birdie, I feel like, oh, this is exactly why we do everything. The whole point of Scout and Birdie is to have an artistic community that is feels very approachable to have a more accessible way to to consume art and solo performance personal stories and to let people really have the range and the the canvas to explore yeah I mean I think when we originally started Scout and Birdie it was from a place of wishing that we had something like this to be just contributing to um and feeling like it was tricky, like, graduating from college and realizing, like, I want to write things um, and really not having a very strong basis of, like, okay, we'll do this. Or there, we just felt like a lot of our friends and us specifically were a little bit stuck and we wanted to have, like, this outlet for people to feel welcomed and safe to, like, explore stuff. And Yeah, and I think I definitely, for the past gosh, like five plus years, my main media consumption has been podcasts. And I always find that it's so much more accessible for me to listen to people sharing their art rather than reading it. I love reading and I love having the option of reading through people's pieces on the website. But for me, like my favorite podcast is probably the Memory Palace still, which is these historical stories um, that Nate DeMeo reads and it like underscored in a really beautiful way so the idea of that accessibility where we're in the city we all like ride the train or walk to work or have these like long commutes where it's really easy to get stuck in your body and kind of get bitter inside you're not having enough human interaction you're not hearing enough from other people from different walks of life so to me those kinds of things ground me a little bit more and really make me feel more human a little bit. Yeah, I agree with you when you're saying that it's like a not simpler but more accessible way for people to access this art that they maybe wouldn't be uh, taking in if it wasn't for it being in podcast form because the amount of times in my life, like when I meet someone and they say, what do you do? And I tell them about Scout and Birdie, they'll just subscribe to the podcast and literally Mm -hmm. just in their playlist of podcasts, ours are just in there. Um, And that's just such a, like a 
it's just wild to think people are like commuting to their, you know, <laughs> to work or like, you know, sitting at home unwinding and they're just listening to our friends and our pieces and it's really exciting. Yeah, it's um a nice like beautiful connection. Yeah, and if I think back to like six months ago, even though I knew we were gonna do it, we we were gonna start Scott and Birdie and have the podcast, I never would have imagined like that people were really gonna listen. Like I guess I thought people would, but not the amount that actually do and, and mm-hmm. the amount of people who tell me like, Oh, I liked your piece on Scout and Birdie and I'm like <laughs> Oh my gosh. Like, <laughs> we're doing it. And yeah. it's a really cool feeling to be doing something with your best friend and mm-hmm. working with a lot of your other best friends and it's great. It's really nice. Jen, what's your favorite part so far of doing Scout and Birdie for the past six months? Um, I would say that my favorite part my favorite part of this process is the in-between recording with people because we record the pieces a couple times and usually it's the second take that is always the big winner. We use most of the second take. Yeah, like 95% um, of the time. <laughs> because the first one, everyone is nervous and it's very nerve-wracking having a microphone in front of your face and usually there's like a big laugh session in between (laughs) where people really are like "Ah!" (laughs) and like the funniest moments of my year have probably happened in between different two different recordings where people just get so goofy and you hear the funniest things and you realize just oh these people are so beautiful and hilarious (laughs) and then the second take is always so much more comfortable and people are like loosened up um, so that's probably my favorite part. What's your favorite part of this process? That's up there, um, having those interactions with the like artists that we've gotten to work with. Um, but I think my favorite part of the process is having like really set scheduled times that you and I meet up together and spend time together. Calm down. I'm not just <laughs> being cheesy, but I think that being like your best friend and getting to just spend time with you as a friend is really wonderful. But also now having this project that we work on together, we have like this whole other side of our friendship. And I think it's like deepened our friendship and strengthened it. Um, And it feels like doing Scout and Birdie already feels very special. But the fact that we're working on it together, I feel like all the time when I tell people that I like run a podcast with my best friend, what could be better than that? What could be better? <laughs> so with that bit of cheesiness, <laughs> um, we'll take you into the issue. So please enjoy Sunburns. So now we're here with Abby Stressa and David Stobie, and they're going to talk a little bit about um, their piece that they created together, which is actually a conversation in poetry. So yeah, tell us a little bit about how this process got started for you guys. Yeah, well, David came to me and was like, do you want to write something together? And I was like, sure. Because, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, like, I hadn't been writing for a while because I just got busy and, like, I missed it. And I was like, cool. But we were going to be 
both out of town for like a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, David is going on a road trip with his family, mm-hmm. and I was gone going on a road trip with my friends Josh Sobel and Alexis Randolph, who are coming with me to DC uh, to meet my family and to go see a show. Um, and so we were road tripping for like sixteen hours, and we were gone. I like, was yeah, like uh, four or five days, and I had to be back in the city by the sixth night for a rehearsal. Yeah, yeah, I mm-hmm. was also gone for like a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were like, we just sort of like started like thinking, okay, well, what is, uh, how can we do this? How can we do this? Let's. Yeah. So we figured, let's just start a doc and not speak to each other for the entirety of these two. And a half, <laughs> yeah. Three weeks. I don't know how long it was. It was like, yeah. it was a good, like two or three weeks, right? Yeah. And totally. so let's just communicate through this doc uh, about what we are seeing, whatever, and just see, sort of see what comes out. Yeah, how are, we fe- how are we feeling? And, like, it became sort of, like, our correspondence, like, as we were out of town um, and just, like, talking to each other. It was cool. It was rad. It became a piece of our checking in. Yeah, it totally did. It you was know. totally a piece of, like, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's really nice. David said that you guys talk on the phone most mornings, or like yeah. at least like reach out to each other every morning because you're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> totally. And so you just check in, which is something Anna and I do together. We have Voxer, which is a walkie yes! app. That was like we... back in the day. I like used it once, and I was like, cool. And then yeah, like I deleted the app. <laughs> we have uh, a year's worth of messages on there, and they are like long messages of our just, just our like walking to work and random things like that. So it's interesting to see like how another crew of best friends would yeah. check in. Um, I think like technology is really interesting nowadays where like it could be, it can be very distancing and you can feel like you're separate from all of these people, but also there's like a beautiful way to use it in kind of an artistic mm-hmm. poetic way, which totally. I think is what you guys have definitely tapped into. Um, and it's interesting to see how your, like, styles match together, mm-hmm. because you have, like, a more, like, flowy kind of rhythm to your poetry, and yours is a little bit more beat poetry, David, yeah, yeah. so, um, it's interesting to see how that meshes together, and how you guys converse that way. Yeah, I think <laughs> it's, it's really interesting, like, we've talked a lot about, like, each other's work, and it's, for me, it's, like, a representation of, like, how we think and, like, what influences us. Like, you know, um, I totally, I don't know, the way I think, I totally use, like, quotes and images from other artists a lot to use as inspiration. And so, like, I feel like that finds its way in my writing. Like, Kate Tempest, like, Maria Popova, Rebecca Solnit, and, like, all these writers that I love. Mm -hmm. And, like, there are these lines that I'm, like, I could not have said it better. You know, and so, but like they stay with me, and so like I, I though that that tend usually tends to um, end up in like my reading, and I love like I don't know Stoby also has this way of like he just like and that I can't do like he just like throws it out on paper. It's like so stream of consciousness, and then like shapes it and into something that's so lovely. And I like am constantly thinking and editing. At the same time. <laughs> yeah. You know? That's how I am. Yeah. So it's interesting to see how everyone does it. Right. Yeah, that kind of stream of consciousness thing is really difficult for me. And David has a really interesting way of putting in all of these cultural references into totally. it, too. So it's interesting to see you draw from more poetic references and you draw more from cultural things. Mm-hmm. And it's really 
a really fun one. <laughs> I made, I mean, in this one, I made a reference to Angel. Uh, what is it? Uh, fucking, it's that Kevin Costner movie. Angels in the Outfield. No, 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 not Angels in the Angels Outfield. in America. No, no. <laughs> that's, no, that's a play. <laughs> that's, that's a play. Uh, yeah. That's Tony Kushner, right? <laughs> yeah. I know, yes, uh, yes, yes. Uh, no, it's uh, the it's, baseball one. Yeah, the, if you build a, field, of field of dreams, field oh. of dreams. <laughs> I kept that for an, an ID for angels and yeah. Costner. Yeah, uh, it was like that's you know I, like I don't know. There's this one beautiful line that like is so overused, but I still like find so such beauty in it. Especially driving through Iowa, it's something my brother always asks me when we're driving through Iowa. Every time he looks over me, he goes, "Is this heaven?" And I go, "No, it's Iowa." <laughs> And like that's what they say in the movie, and it's like this really underscored, profound moment in the movie. I but really want like... to go to Iowa now because <laughs> like my friend like uh, like worked directed a show at like Iowa State University or something, mm -hmm. and he came back. He's like, Iowa is so calm mm -hmm. and like has like amazing food and is like yeah. such a lovely like weekend vacation. Take the dog and like yeah. Airbnb yeah. trip, and I was like, that sounds it, nice. It's really very interesting because I think in Chicago we get really stuck in ourselves where like, there's zero landscapes other than like the man-made landscapes that we have created within the city yeah. so we forget that there's beautiful rows of corn out there right yeah. <laughs> and that just watching them wave in the wind is so soothing yeah i mean like there's this conversation i had with a buddy of mine a long time ago which was like the difference between people that live in the city versus people that live in places like iowa they get to see the sort of calm and slower paced lifestyle whereas in the city we're fast and it's uh, and actually it says that people in the city are more empathetic because mm. they're surrounded by larger groups of people mm. so then mm. you go to like a place that moves a lot slower they don't see many people mm. they're mm. they're they're limited to what they're to their immediate perception of things right so it's a, you know i think that's something that i'm very interested in yeah. is like we go to iowa there isn't really much there but like i don't you know they, they you see what i'm saying it's like yeah no. There's yeah. not much there, so people focus more inward, I guess. Mm. And so they're like in their head and more self-focused, I guess. But that's not necessarily a terrible thing. It's yeah. just a different way of living, I guess. Yeah, and I'm interested in how like the internet ha might like have influenced or helped that mm -hmm. in both like city mm -hmm. and country, like mm -hmm. um, how it influences our culture mm -hmm. in 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 terms of personality in terms of like how we communicate yeah. internally externally how we think stuff like that which is fascinating and, i mean that's something that is like really inherent a lot of things i'm trying to work with is like how to use the internet especially mm -hmm. you know especially with like you know poetry how do you make poetry more accessible but like and i think there's something really fascinating going on in the internet right now uh, which is called the alternative literature movement mm -hmm. which is led by like rachel bell or steve roganbuck uh, incredible poets, by the way. This that is a name drop. They're incredible. I never <laughs> met them. I just am obsessed with their work. Um, no, but like they're they're very Dadaist. Everything is as either stolen from the internet or just improvised, uh, you know, and put on the the internet and sort of how do we? Inc I don't know. The internet is just an entirely different world. So it's like I'm influenced by like Matthew Dickman, who does something very similar in style. Um, Steve Roganbuck. Rachel, uh, Rachel Bell, a lot of the beatniks and whatnot, but also just like my friends, because mm -hmm. you know something that Ubby and I did for a long time before we ever even. This is our first time really collaborating on. Yeah, like a piece. A piece. Yeah. We've like worked together on like plays and stuff. Right, and helped each other with mm -hmm. pieces, but mm -hmm. like not actually collaborated on a on a thing. Yeah. That we made together. 
And so, like, we, Bobby and I, you'll, you can find us on the seventh floor of the Harold Washington Library mm. every day over the winter. Yeah. Oh. Every day. Like... Especially when we were going to Columbia, yeah. And that was the fifth floor of the Columbia Library when we were there. And then now it's like, we're both not at Columbia anymore. Yeah. And so we're always on the seventh sort floor. Sort of, yeah. Yeah, and there's, there's, there's scripts. I mean, it's, it's such a resource. I, I don't know. Everything is accessible on the internet, but also, like, go to the fucking library. Yeah. <laughs> is it okay to say fucking? <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. No, it's great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it's it's really interesting to see what you guys draw from. And then this this one definitely went in the direction of uh, thinking of America as a country of immigrants and how mm-hmm. our country has evolved along with this kind of internet and technology evolution, mm-hmm. how we've evolved into kind of a thing where you become a thing of many instead mm-hmm. of maintaining an identity in a certain mm-hmm. way, which is definitely something I resonate coming from my grandparents immigrated from Japan. And mm-hmm. so I'm connected to their culture to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but um, distanced from it. And there's almost a sense of like, you should take pride in your culture, but then at the same time, you need to be American yeah. more than anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something that is like, I noticed with a lot of my family, I come from a very, my father's side is very blue collar. Um, and my mother's side, you know, they immigrated to the States. But something that is inherent in both is that like, you know, there's this, uh, you're American and you became American. But I, and like later in life, I learned that my grandfather, you know, came to America when he was only 16 um, and shed so much of his culture because he had to become this thing. And I don't know if I like that because now I don't really have this sense of like, like, what do we eat? What is in, you know, other than like hot dogs and red solo cups, which I say in the thing being is like, what is, what is Estonian? Like, what do you eat in Estonia? I don't know that. Like, I don't know other things that come from a cookbook. Uh, like what is inherent to my culture? What is my culture? Like, I want to be like, I want to have this sense of you know, I love, you know, America is fantastic, but, like, where is, what is, what makes me unique in that sense? Right, and what is the thing that would normally be passed down through your family? Mm-hmm. Even, yeah. you could look in an Estonian recipe book, and there's tons of recipes, but what would be the thing that would be tied to memory most, mm-hmm. or, like, a sensory thing? Yeah. Uh, my grandparents ran a nursery for mm-hmm. 41 years, and I'll feel really connected when I'm tending to plants or... Uh, trimming like bonsai or anything mm. like that yeah. um, and it's those kinds of things that you'll feel a connection to even when you maybe didn't experience it in a certain way like yeah but it's like it's in your bones blood. it's in your blood <laughs> yeah. it's in your dna so that's yeah. yeah that's very fascinating um and like it's interesting i you know we've talked about this um is like i don't know the the emergence of whiteness that mm-hmm. you know like that happened when europeans came and then like when when did white people say no and like forgot their Italian and more European roots? And when yeah. did whiteness emerge and wash over everything? Yeah. Um, uh, for me, it's like an, a totally different tangent. Like I grew up here. I thought I was American before I was anything else. And then it wasn't until I, until shitty things happen and you figure out that you're different that I then had to go back and cling onto my culture to, mm-hmm. to, identify with something and feel connected to something because the people I was connected to, there was a difference that I did not see. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's very interesting, like, 
growing up in America and like the evolution of at least for me clinging on to my culture because like growing up there was not only like a generational gap but there was a cultural gap too because I was definitely like my parents would be like don't forget where you come from but like I moved here when I was three Mm -hmm. and they don't have time to teach me like my culture because they're out working right and so like how do I learn other than going to museums and reading up on it and like it's so hard it's so difficult and like I like when you're young you don't listen to your grandma right like when I I was such a shitty kid and I like I feel so bad because like my grandma was there and showed so much love that I did not comprehend until she's now back in Nepal and I'm like oh I miss her you know yeah it's just it's a very fascinating like There's there's this very specific thing that I remember in elementary school when we were doing this sort of family tree project where we had to go back and like look to where we came from. And I remember calling my grandfather who lived next door. My father built a house next door for his parents so he could take care of them. Um, You know, they later passed away. We still like still have that house. Like that's interesting. That's a whole nother piece in itself. But it's like. I remember calling my grandfather, this old red-faced man who couldn't, he had purple feet because he was so fat he couldn't stand up, you know? Oh my no. God. Yeah, this is really disgusting feet, don't want to talk about that, it was horrible. Um, but he would, uh, I remember calling him and asking him, like, where do we come from? Yeah. And he just said, well, my father came from Nebraska, my mother came from, uh, Nebraska and I'm like yeah but where before that and like that was it like we we couldn't have the there was no conversation beyond that Mm -hmm. whereas like there's this my grandfather told told his daughters where he come from came from what he went through like that whole thing about seeing Hitler he saw Hitler when he was nine or ten before Hitler was even Hitler he watched him in an art shop and like what is I don't know it's just like there's such rich history there and I don't even know on my father's side, because it's just, it's all about, like, there's this thing about work on that side of the family, mm-hmm. which is, which I admire, because I, you know, but I don't know, like, what is American? Is it, like, is there's, like, this, I don't know, there's the yeah. idea of the American dream, but you have to be asleep to believe in it, yeah. right? You know what I mean? And it's just so different for everyone, yeah. but we feel like it's the same thing. <laughs> we <laughs> know. We're told Yeah, we're told so it's, it's like, the same thing. And I feel like that's what we tack- like yeah. we began to tackle. Because I totally, I was riding my bike down like Broadway, and I saw like a piece of plastic, and I literally thought it was a black <laughs> plastic. And I was like, that's so weird. Why am I perceiving things this way? Um, yeah. Well, I think America is in itself sort of a living document of its own, so it's kind of fitting that you it's not done yeah you know like i think we have to like recognize that like it isn't finished like uh when even the declaration was written it was such a young country when the 1960s rolled around it was still so young we're still like we we have so many things to fix Mm -hmm. and like i don't know it's just it isn't over yet and like we have i don't know we have to have the conversation it has to be uncomfortable yeah and you got to sit in the uncomfortability yeah. to move forward from it. Or at least recognize that there's a fucking issue. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes. Um, with that, um, thank you guys so much for being here. Um, thank you for having us. This was yeah, awesome. This, was, this is a pleasure. <laughs> so this is incredible. to talk to you guys. Yeah. Um, so enjoy this beautiful conversation in poetry, what we had for lunch.
I'm wondering what you had for lunch. I had the sunrise sampler from Cracker Barrel, over easy eggs, a slice of ham. My friend, I had vegetable biryani, <laughs> the food of my people, sort of. It usually has meat, succulent lamb or juicy chicken, a platter in brown scale. And we sit on the floor and we eat with our hands because it tastes so much better that way. But mine had onions and carrots and colors I don't usually see in my mom's cooking. And I was using a spoon when I have perfectly fine hands. And suddenly I was stuck trying to be who I wanted to be in a battle with who I was brought up to be. I saw a piece of plastic floating in the wind the other day and I thought it was a butterfly. That felt like America to me. What feels like America to you? I had a piece of plastic in my raisin bran. And I guess that feels like America, man. See, I was told it was Budweiser and fireworks people and endangered birds. I was told a lot of things I learned were dreams. And I'm driving through Iowa to Nebraska, a fruited plain of not too much, and I can tell you here, friend, the rest of America looks like the rest of America. I can tell you a rest stop has the same atmosphere as most diners I've seen. The same sized fly. People wear the same damn eagle shirt for miles, but nobody cares for the bird in flight. I had a sunrise sampler. The food of my people at a Cracker Barrel, and suddenly I'm stuck, trying to be who I want to be in battle with who I was brought up to be. I got off work today at noon, and I felt a sense of worry. Was I doing all that I could for my family, for my mom? I felt like pursuing my dream meant denying them theirs, and suddenly I got buried. But then, on my way to the red line, no name told me, don't fear the light that dwells deep within, you are powerful beyond what you imagine. Just let your light glow. And a smile grew like a rose in a field of weeds. Dirt and concrete melt into fresh morning cut grass, greener than the bi-weekly reality check. I can do both. Hope and love aren't mutually exclusive. I hear Iowa is calm. It is. There isn't much, but I kept my eye out for a baseball field. I kept my eye out for Angels and Kevin Costner. I kept my eye out for you, and I woke up in Nebraska in the back seat where there were truck beds full of hay and trains being pulled by giant armadillos, and they've got hearts in their chests, worried about a deadline, some deadline separating Nebraska and Colorado, where there are boulders to be pushed, like every rock my family became to give me something new. I thought about you, brother. What would Nebraska gas stations do for you? The flies, people, and jerky. Nebraska gas stations, the flies, people, and jerky. I don't know, man. It would remind me where I am. Lately, I've had dreams of flying, home for the winter, climbing the Himalayas that feel greener than I remember. I moved to America when I was three, and my only memory of the mountains is of this blue crib with two bottom drawers, which I'm sure were filled with toys. I've been thinking a lot about what home means to me. Is it about the roots of the trees or the view of the greenery? I've been told home is where the heart is, so I went looking. I think mine might be in a distant country, in a field of Tulsi in my grandma's garden. I'm on the road to see my childhood home, to see my mom smile, 
I'm on the road and see so many trucks, but not so many trees. Or at least not as many that my mind sees. I imagined a constellation of green that mirrored the sky blue. Oh wait, I just saw some purple. I miss you, brother. Hope your niece is doing well. Her smile in that photo on the wall feels like so much love. I closed my eyes earlier and I wanted to hold my niece. And I think she's with my heart in the field of Tulsi. I ask about gas stations because there are things in there you can't get anywhere. I'm thinking of like Coke or the smell in every unwashed bathroom or some cigarettes. And there's a kid who looks to be 12 in a subway in the station who looks like he's never smoked a cigarette. I bet the cockroaches there scatter and panic the same way as they do in my kitchen when I turn the light on. You have cockroaches? <laughs> there's so many dead in Nebraska lining the walls of the bathroom floor. One ply paper soaked in water, and I hope it isn't urine. I'm looking to the blue ridge of a mountain and calling my sister in the front seat who's telling my niece about keeping things clean. I've smashed, stomped, flicked, crushed, and brushed a cockroach with about every finger except my index. But I still don't know if I've actually killed one. I'm not sure they die. I used to let them crawl around my hand until it got too creepy just because I was curious. But I was scared to let them get too close. They seemed harmless, but for some reason I thought they were monsters. I guess if you think some way about something for a really long time, you perceive it to be true. To you. I hear emotions aren't reactions from a woman named Lisa, who studied how we feel for 25 years. Emotions were at the forefront of her research. She discovered that emotions aren't reactions to a world, but how we construct the world. Fascinating. Family met family today. It felt like two homes coming together and learning. I used to play with ants and spiders and make them live together in the backyard of my suburban house. <laughs> I drilled holes into the lid. That way the little buggers could breathe. They normally died because I didn't know how to feed them. I'm with my family in the mountains in Colorado. The mountains are blue, but the clouds in them are young and lovers, touching each other like one's about to cry. I'm hiking up Agnes Vale Falls, named after Agnes Vale, where a mountain let her slip and fall like her husband did when a horse kicked him in the face. I'm looking at the ground, the uprooted trees, and boulders crushed into smaller boulders. And a moment ago, the mountains fell. I'm looking up. The mountains are indifferent. Like they could smash, stomp, flick, crush, and brush me off the face of the earth with the slip of one of their kids. My grandfather came to America when I was 16, I think. That's what Marga, my aunt, says while we're cutting into dinner. We're knocking our heads back, laughing at the jokes he's retelling through us by memory. Also, his appreciation for tiny things. He saved his work so we could come up here like we do every year. He escaped Russians and lived in occupied territory. He traded 16 cigarettes for a single egg. He has 22 barrels of uncracked wheat in the crawl space under Joliet, where I've lived for 23 years. In America, where I know nothing about that, or who he was then, or how he saw Hitler in an art shop when he was 9 or 10. The man watched evil walk across the room and didn't know what to call it. When he came to America, he became American. And I don't know if I like that. 
What kind of food did he eat? What kind of food isn't a hot dog or a red Solo cup? I thought he was paranoid, you know? I found a gun cabinet full of unopened bottles of vodka, never guns, just alcohol which he would trade if the Russians ever came. And I realized, as we're playing chess under the ceiling fan, he wasn't teaching me to play chess. He was teaching me to play ahead and have awareness and be prepared of the world, its state, and how I fit into it, what I have, and how to move forward. He constructed a world of silent preparation like a house for a family. He was silently living in fear of that world collapsing like a boulder falling and crushing me and Agnes Vale. I'm leaving tomorrow onto a metal dragon where cars will look like cockroaches along long stretches of indifferent streets from made from tiny dried rocks. My niece crawls onto my lap asking me for poetry. She cries in my lap and continuously mutters, but I'm gonna miss you, boo-boo. I say to her what I've said to you, friend. Goodbyes are the best part. They make the hello so much sweeter. In 2018, I want to say hello so many more times than I've had to say goodbye. So many more times than all of my friends have had to say goodbye to loved ones in 2017 without the knowledge of when the next hello even might could be. Because we have such specific ideas of the future. For the future. We have plans that feel so real. That feel close enough that I don't need my glasses to see. But reality is, without my glasses, I can't see shit. And the future is as blurry and as nebulous as a tree in the distance. I can see the trunk, but I can't see the leaves. I still take my glasses off, though, when looking at the night sky. Because the stars, though blurry, are so much bigger. The texture of their shine is so visceral, I can look up and not have to worry about the future. When I look at those stars... They feel big enough for my grandma to be able to see the same stars I see. And when I look up at the stars that look like crystals, the American soil feels like it's pulling me away from the star that my grandma and I are enjoying. The grass turns to quicksand that is taking way too long. So I close my eyes and call my aunt in Nepal, the aunt that my grandma is living with, and I hear my grandma's voice with all the love a grandma can hold. The capacity of love expanded decade by decade like rings in a tree, to a point so exponentially large that a 22-year-old could never even fathom. I hear her ask me if I've forgotten the stories she used to tell me when my feet were the size of Madeline's. The stories of Krishna stealing a jar of butter from atop a shelf that should have been too high for him to reach and eating it like Winnie the Pooh devours honey. I hear her ask me how all my friends are doing, the ones that love her and the ones that I don't talk to anymore. Because like I said, her capacity to love is exponential. I'm on my way back to our skyline now. When the body takes flight and the mind follows, when you're in a metal bird and the mystery of gravity seeps into your core, you feel heavier and lighter all in the same breath. And you know, you left your parents, but you're going home. I'm on a plane, friend, back to our skyline. Our cement granite and marble village clad in glass and steel, swaying in storms of shifting tides, the things we believe in. Ideals handed down by people like your grandmother and my grandfather, people I love. We are transforming into empathetic giants. We will be tall like buildings that will wave at the plains one of us will be on away soon. But I am on my way back on a plane. You called the other morning, you woke me up, and apologized for doing so. I haven't heard from you since. I thought it was funny I didn't call you back.
I was swept up in the overwhelming current affairs of work and passion, and know that when we end up at the finished table at Dollop, where we will talk about the very pretty baristas and talk to them about where we all came from, we will read books and poetry and the people we admire. We will celebrate each other for our success, our triumphs, because you fed me and I fed you when we didn't have the means. I will feed you the way storms feed our planet. I will quit dairy, but never caffeine. I will sing your praises and never let you down. The past 24 hours have been rough. I've lost many things, mostly sleep and money. You've been there for me, and for that I can't thank you enough. I've been thinking again about America, my friend. A place that pries on fear for profit. A land infested with scams, scandals, sunburns, and systems that we try to overthrow with riots. But as Kate Tempest says, riots are tiny though, systems are huge. Systems so big I feel like a needle in a haystack. I get lost and swallowed up. I get hurt and don't know how to ask for help. America again. A supposed melting pot where people from all over the world gather to follow the immigrant dream of the American dream. A dream promised, but always just out of reach. The American dream for me is to sleep. And sleep and sleep and sleep and sleep until I realize that sleeping all day is a symptom of depression and that my fatigue may not always be because I am working too hard. The American dream for me may never be a reality, but isn't the dream more of a myth? Some sort of duality that balances hope and critical thinking? Maria Popova says that we need both because critical thinking without hope is cynicism, but hope without critical thinking is naivete. And she's so right. I want happiness, but Rebecca Solnit says happiness is a fleeting condition. I want a bridge that lets me travel continents. I want an American dream that lets me not worry about fiscal responsibility. I want everyone to acknowledge that our differences are what makes us the same. Because James Joyce claimed that in the particular is contained the universal. My American dream is to get everyone to do what Kate Tempest begs us to do. Wake up and love more. So now we're here with the beautiful Lauren O'Connell. And we're going to hear a poem that she wrote called Sunscreen Your Heart. My ego chases my love into the sun, burning what I want most. Baby, it's best you run. My heart's on fire within. Like a bug to a light, it'll draw you in. But be weary, baby. Sunscreen your heart. Catching feelings as quick as I release them has become my art. Pretend not to love me, it's the only way. Let me ease into you, keep my emotions at bay. So if you have been listening to our previous podcast, you'll remember Lauren from our messy issue. Yes, where she did a poem called Dark Deep Side, which was turned into a song by Carolyn Malloy. And Lauren is the modern astrologer. So she creates poems based off of astrological charts yeah (laughs) so Lauren tell us about what inspired this piece in astrology so with the theme sunburned it immediately made me think of this term in astrology called combust planets and so what that means is in a chart if a planet is too close to the sun it's 
called combust. And essentially what that means is the energy of that planet kind of gets irritated or agitated by the heat of the sun. Um, and it is really common in a chart because the two planets, Mercury and Venus, revolve very closely around the sun. So you notice in a birth chart that those two planets, Mercury's our logic, Venus is how we love and what we like to find in love in a partner. Those two things circle very closely to the sun, so it is common to have one of them combust. Um, and combust would mean directly on the sun. And so when that happens, um, the sun kind of agitates that aspect of that planet. So this poem is about the Venus being combust. And so somebody that has a combust Venus, um, it can make somebody really magnetic. Um, and so they'd be eventually their romantic interests get burned by their ego. So ego is represented by the sun and Venus is represented by our love. So the ego will burn that part of them and they'll become restless in love. So they'll have to really learn in life to focus more on their internal soul purpose, which is the sun, rather than the romantic relationships, even though that might be what they crave most and it is what they seek most in life. And they do normally get it really easily because that aspect of their chart becomes very magnetic to other people. Um, so that's what this poem is about. It's kind of like, this is what I want most. You're going to love this about me, but be careful because it'll burn you because it's burned me my whole life type of thing. So if I'm understanding it correctly, someone who has a combusted Venus mm -hmm. would crave a relationship. Yes. But then once they're in a relationship, they would be restless. Restless in love if that partner became a little bit too needy or all about the relationship. These type of people cannot solely live their life for another person or mm. for love, which is fine. That's, you know, we can find that easily. A lot of people are born on this earth to be entrepreneurs or movie stars, whatever, actor, whatever you need to be, that's your sole drive. And so these are the type of people that would put love maybe secondary to mm. work, and that's fine. But um, they tend to crave love the most and they tend to get it really easily. And so it's just something that you have to keep in mind if you happen to know somebody's chart that you're interested in and you see this, <laughs> you'd be like, oh shoot, I'm gonna play it. Not to play games, but don't be coming on too strong with these people because they'll get restless, they'll get agitated, and they might just up and leave out of nowhere. Like, while you're saying this, I'm thinking, okay, that sounds like <laughs> exes of mine. How, if you're, like, listening, how could you go about figuring out if someone that you're interested in or an ex or a current partner is... You probably already know <laughs> because they've already had the signs. But if you can find out somebody's <laughs> time of birth, you can easily pull their chart. Um, even if you don't know their time of birth, you can kind of see the degrees between the planets. Um, and so there's a lot of things online. Astro.com is a great source that you can find your birth chart. Um, and if you see planets are 30 degrees, um, there's a sign that, that lasts 30 degrees long. And if the sun and Venus or sun and any other planet are on top of each other or share an orb of less than two degrees, that would be a combust planet. Um, some people think it's like up to five degrees, seven degrees, but I say really the sun doesn't agitate a planet unless it's like directly on it or two degrees off. Oh, it's like a whole other language, true, <laughs> yes, truly. Yeah. Um, it can get really, really It's so detailed. intricate. <laughs> um, so how did you get into astrology? I know you mentioned earlier your grandmother was an astrologer. Yes. So it's kind of funny growing up 
I thought that was normal. Um, we would mm. go visit her over Christmas breaks, and she would do our birth charts. She would do palm readings, and I grew up Catholic, so it was, like, not something that we ever knew about, and we'd just go visit Grammy and just be like, oh, my gosh, this is so fun. And then we go back to our lives where it was never spoken about ever again. So <laughs> um, not until freshman year of college did I have a roommate who was also, like, in, into this kind of stuff, so we'd go see psychics and tarot readers for fun and – um, it wasn't until a few years ago that I ended up learning myself and teaching myself astrology. And it's kind of sad, but my grandma's not like to the point where she's really into it anymore. She's gotten older and she, I did call her up and told her that I was into it now and she still remembers aspects, which is really cool. Um, but yeah, I never knew it back then when she was doing it for me. It's a new thing for me, but it's definitely in the blood. It's running in your family. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that you research the actual um, understanding of astrology and then you take that into a creative form by creating Mm -hmm. this poetry. Um, How did you combine the two or realize that you enjoyed like taking it to a further level with your creativity? Well, I like poetry. I don't, I still don't really know what I'm doing. I've never taken any classes or writing classes or anything like that. But um, I found that it's so inspiring to read someone's chart. It is really, it's a, like a raw look at somebody. Um, it, it shows, you know, the struggle they've, they've been through, how they love somebody, what they look for in love, how they go about taking action in life. Um, it's who they are to the core. It's, it shows their emotional side that you don't really know until you really know somebody intimately. You can see that in a chart and you can see what drives them. And so it's so inspiring once I look at a chart or I think of an astrological term that's, you know, maybe challenging for somebody, I find the beauty in that. And I like to write poetry based on that. So a lot of my poems, well, some of them are definitely about like ex-boyfriends and stuff. (laughs) Um, Many, many of them are inspired by people's charts and their stories because, I mean, there's only so much cool stuff that I've got going on. <laughs> you can't really write about it. So um, it's really intimate. Astrology is very intimate. A lot of people think it's a little ridiculous, but it's raw. And whenever I pull a chart, I like to be like, are you ready for me to call you on your shit? <laughs> because it gets real. <laughs> Honestly, though, you just right before we started this interview, you read a little bit of my birth chart, and I was like, how do you know this about me? <laughs> and Jen sitting there like, this is so accurate. <laughs> this is why you call me for like two hour talking sessions about every emotion you feel. Yes. It's logically emotional. Jen's just smirking at me right He's now. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, there's nothing more fun than um, listening to a friend get a reading while you see the friend's reaction. <laughs> That's why like, I like doing group readings because everybody else is like, yes, yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Whilst the person's kind of like, I don't know, okay. It's hard to hear. <laughs> so it's really fun, especially with couples. It's it's really great to do um put both of their charts on top of each other because then you can really see the strengths of their relationship, um, the fights that they have where it, it's so easy for us to blame the other person always of like, oh, we fight because he can't handle this or she can't handle this. And then you really look at a chart and it's like, actually it's just the lack of communication here, or this person finds their drive this way, and you don't, and so there's mm-hmm. nothing wrong with that. And so it's really, mm-hmm. I think it's a great tool. It's like the best form of therapy almost, because oh. you don't, you get all the answers if you're willing to take them in. 
it can be an amazing tool to be more empathetic to people, understand your shortcomings, your strengths, most importantly. I think a lot of people can look at this stuff and be like, I don't want to hear the bad things, but the bad things are what inspire us to be better. And if you don't know about them, you can't learn and be better. And if you know about your strengths, which I'm super optimistic when I read someone's chart, I, it's always a good thing. So like, learn what you're good at and strive for that and learn what your faults are and just it's okay if you suck at something. Who gives a shit? <laughs> <laughs> You've totally like convinced me to to do more research. And yeah. so if someone is like wanting to learn more about it, they could go to your website, yeah. right? Yeah, themodernastrologer.com. If um, you want a reading or you just want little daily inspirations, I post a lot for Instagram. Um, I try to make it easily understandable for everyday it people. It certainly is. Like <laughs> We both follow you on Instagram, obviously. <laughs> and we're always like, wow. This is like a great daily dose and it's a nice reminder of where to put your energy each mm-hmm. day. So it's really and today beautiful. And you're not alone. Like, yeah. <laughs> we're having a bad week. Like, it's okay. So are a lot of people. So as much as I post for other people, I also post to remind myself, like, okay, Lauren, this is going on. Like, let's focus on this part and let's thrive in this area of life instead. So, uh Amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here with yeah, us. Thank you. Of course. You. I love this stuff. <laughs> Come back anytime you want and talk Thank about you. this. With we'll us. read your charts. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and you guys can look forward to hearing the song version of this mm-hmm. poem in our next issue, Passing Notes. With the amazing Carolyn Malloy. Yay. She's a <laughs> musical genius. Lauren's just going to pass the poem right over yes. to Right Karen. over. <laughs> <laughs> Clever. It's a little plug. <laughs> Stay tuned. (laughs) Yay! Yay. Next, we have my beautiful Basharat best friend, Jennifer Keel. Uh, So I hope you enjoy her piece, Lizard on a Hot Rock. I stand on the shore of the Salton Sea. Sea is a generous name for this body of water. The shore is lined with the decaying carcasses of the overpopulated fish that cover its sandy beach, and the air is thick with the smell of rotting eggs, a result of the hydrogen sulfide that lingers in the air. Two years after this visit, one late summer day in 2012, this stench will stretch all across Southern California over 150 miles to Los Angeles, where people will cover their faces as they walk outdoors. The Salton Sea used to be a hoppin' place. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and the Rat Pack would travel here to host speedboat races at the Yacht Club. Truly a nostalgic 60s lover's dream. Now the Salton Sea looks like a post-apocalyptic nightmare out of Mad Max, with rust-coating abandoned vehicles stuck half in the sand, which slowly eats away at its metal frame as the wind sweeps by. I'm not visiting the Salton Sea for leisure. No one visits the Salton Sea for leisure anymore. I'm visiting as part of a class called Conservation of Natural Resources. During this class, we learn about conservation, environmental ethics, practical implementations, etc. And naturally, we visit places of ecological importance in the Colorado desert. 
I signed up for this class on somewhat of a whim. When I returned home from studying overseas, I felt like the meat of a person without any bones. The structure that I flourished under had been exchanged for a freedom that overwhelmed me and made me feel more trapped than routine ever did. The old off-white and gray buildings standing tall in the London mist were replaced by long, flat, mid-century modern homes that lined the streets of Palm Springs. When the desert heat hits me, goosebumps raise on my arms and my body shivers. Mornings are the hardest part of the day for me. I wake up feeling like a heavy slug and end up swearing at myself saying, you fucking lazy, useless cunt, get your ass up. I drive my tiny silver car to lectures, then to the middle of nowhere of ecological importance, which sometimes smells like rotting eggs. My professor tells us that the salinity of the Salton Sea is higher than that of the ocean, which creates a unique environment. This is clear by the fact that the dead fish on the shore far outnumber the humans. Other than the dead fish, this is one of the cleanest bodies of water around. Of course, there are dangerous large algae blooms which create too much for the fish to feed on. They lack any predators, so they become overpopulated, and the lack of oxygenation causes the fish to die in large quantities. Ideally, she says, the state would fund a project in which they would reroute water from the Colorado River to the Salton Sea, then dig out to the Gulf of Mexico so it could flow into the Pacific Ocean, but that's unlikely to ever happen because it would cost millions of dollars. Instead, the body of water will slowly shrink as it evaporates, and when large gusts of wind stir up the water, the smell will travel 150 miles to people who will get angry enough to notice, but not angry enough to do anything about it. As the water disappears, sediment will likely create toxic dust, and large dust bowls will wipe out crops and make millions of dollars seem like nothing. Under the clear water, I can see the remnants of the wooden houses and buildings that stood before it was flooded and made into a sea. I'm not sure if it's the smell of rotting eggs or the visual of dead fish or the clear water reflecting the desert sun so that it's even brighter and hotter than anywhere I've ever been, but I feel okay here. It's not a place where you can really stay in your head. It is what it is. All of our excursions are like this. They make me feel awake. We traveled to Whitewater Preserve and look at the nearby wind turbines. You can fit three H1 Hummers into the nose of the new models. The breeze makes my hair flap in the wind and I feel small. The turbines are reliable and easy to maintain, but must be put where there is consistent wind and as a result are put directly in the flight path of many species of birds. Thousands of birds have been killed by the turbines. A small amount in the grand scheme of things, but still notable. There are pros and cons to everything. The living desert is a zoo that doesn't feel like a zoo. Not long ago, I went to a very zoo-like zoo with one of my friends, and I cried because one of the gorillas in the large exhibit had eyes that reminded me of my grandfather. I started to think about Japanese internment camps where people who looked like me were taken away from their homes and forced to make the best of things in an unfamiliar place. I think I like gorillas more than humans. The living desert is not like that. 
It consists of only species native to the desert. The exhibits are huge and their work is focused less on being a tourist attraction and more on preserving threatened species and restoring habitats. I think that if there must be zoos and human interference, I guess this is the way I'd like it to be done. I signed up to take a few more classes shortly after my first trip. In entomology, we learn about insects. This doesn't stop me from screeching when I see them out of context. In our classroom, there are multiple custom wooden chests with 20 or so thin drawers housing pinned insects and arachnids with little white papers beneath describing each specimen. I am charged with the task of creating a collection of my own. I have three different sizes of pins, specialty tweezers and scissors, two different sizes of kill jars, and a collapsible insect net with green mesh. I am an insect catching master. My net technique is amazing, but when I get them in the jar, I'm filled with remorse. I don't like staring at them, trapping them. On these excursions, I also carry around a small vial of chemicals. We use ethyl acetate now because it leaves the specimen more flexible than cyanide, which stiffens them and makes them delicate to work with. The cyanide is quick, whereas the ethyl acetate takes much longer, and you're forced to either watch them squirm or leave them to a private last moment trapped in a room with a view of out, but no way. There are pros and cons to everything. I can't bring myself to do it. Instead, my professor allows me to play a game of catch and release, photograph the insects, and send them on their way. He says he understands. Reptiles of the Desert is my favorite class of all. It consists almost entirely of lectures that take place on hikes. We explore Deep Canyon, a private reserve and research center. We examine the flora and observe the bighorn sheep living on the side of the mountain. Throughout the city, there are statues of brightly painted bighorn sheep, but this is my first time I've seen one in person, majestic and sans bright paint, a threatened species in their natural habitat. I watch as two bighorn sheep begin ramming their horns together, fighting. We tread lightly through the canyon so as not to disturb the lizards and snakes. This is their home and we must be courteous guests. I observe a chuckwalla, a lizard common to this area with a fat belly and a stern looking face. The lizard sits perched on a rock basking in the sun, chin facing upward. Chuckwallas are ectothermic and spend most of their day basking. There is no thought of what could be for a lizard on a hot rock. Everything is what it is. Hunt and lie in the sun. Calm, peaceful, and ready, content, and present. Hiking through the desert, baked by the sun from above and below by its reflection off the desert floor, I feel like that. And I can think of nothing better. All right, up next we have the wonderfully talented Ian Michael James. Ian is a playwright, so he created this audio drama 
which will be performed by David Stoby and Anna Wolf. If you like it, please be sure to check it out online and see the text, as well as a written interview with Ian about his process and how he goes about approaching playwriting in this modern world. So please enjoy Sunburnt, a radio drama. Robin? Yes, Kyle? You got it. Okay. Great, thank you. Yep. So, Montrose Beach? Yep. Head north on Greenview Avenue, then right on Morse Street. Uh, do you know how long it will take? This says uh, 15 minutes. Jesus. Shit. Running late? Yes. Ah, well, do what I can. Oh, uh, do you need water? No, thank you. Okay. How is, is, is the temperature fine? You, you getting enough air? Could we not? What? Sorry, but could we not? I, what? Can we just not do the thing, the talking thing? I'm not, look. We both know how this goes. You offer the stuff at the beginning of the ride, the water, the air, maybe a mint. I don't know. You're probably going to offer a charger for my phone next. I'll decline. We'll ride in silence for another minute. You'll say you can't believe the weather this weekend, and I'll say, yeah, sure is a hot one. You'll ask if I've been in the city long, if I like my neighborhood, if I think it's safe. You'll ask what I do for a living. I'll ask you how long you've been driving for, if you like it, even though I really just don't care and then we'll talk about how great Chicago is but I don't know enough about the city to have an interesting fact to move the conversation along so you'll pull out some random tidbit you bring up on every ride about how the Freemasons built some of the oldest buildings in the city or some shit and then we'll both be quiet again and you'll mention the weather again and we'll arrive at the beach and you'll pull a block past where I said to stop and you'll be like oh right here right here right right here and I won't fucking say anything because you're cheaper than a cab. So, like, who the fuck cares? And before I get out, you'll try to make weird eye contact. Like, this is an important human connection that matters for either of us or something. And I'll get out and I'll give you five stars and you'll give me three or four because I'm quiet, which you take as rudeness, I guess. So, yes, three stars. And tomorrow I'll get an email about this ride asking me to tip and I'll probably forget. Okay? Is that okay? Can we skip all of this and just ride in silence? 
Turn right on Sheridan and continue south for one mile. And you know what? Uh... I'm not sorry. What? I said I was sorry before I went into this whole thing, but I'm not. That's what I meant. I'm speaking my mind. I'm not sorry. Okay. Okay. I, um, this is actually my first drive, like, ever. Oh. Well, fuck. Man. So I, I wasn't gonna, like... Man, it's fine. I don't know anything about, Forget like, it. No, Freemasons it's fine. or whatever. S sorry. No big deal. Do you mind if I put on suntan lotion right now? I should have done it before I left my apartment. I don't want to stink up your car. Your new car? Why not put it on when you get to the beach? Okay, I, I won't put it on in your car. Oh, I just meant, like, you, you, that's not where people usually do it. I burn really easily. I don't know where on the beach I'm meeting everyone. I don't want to walk around for 15 minutes and be burnt by the time I find them. So Yeah, but you can but you can put on suntan lotion before you start looking for them. I'm not really seeing the reason why you're... I'd like to do it before I get out of the car, if that's okay. Okay, please, just don't spill on anything. What? <laughs> there he is. Sorry, just that sound always gets me. Great. You know, I burn all the time, too. Like a lobster. Good for you. I, I actually had to go to the hospital one time. Really? Yeah, it totally sucked. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's fine. What happened? A couple of friends went day drinking down to the creek near where we grew up. Stayed out there for like five hours. I passed out in an inner tube for a while. I woke up and just, just red all over. Stomach, shoulders, legs, forehead, neck, the front of my neck, because I was, you know, sprawled out. So I flipped out of the inner tube, and the water hit me like, bam, like needles, and my whole body was numbed. And I, I, I get out of the water to where our stuff is, and my friend Brent brought some aloe, because I guess he planned ahead or whatever. So I started putting on some, and suddenly my body is just on fire. And I look down. It's not aloe. It's fucking Vicks Vapor Rub. No. Yeah, uh, yeah, like like fire of a thousand suns. Brunt thought they were the same thing because they're like both like soothing. Uh, I almost fucking killed me. Wow. So I've got I still got some scars like ruddy ruddy skin on my upper back. Look, if you look close. That's pretty crazy. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, for getting me out of my head. Oh, uh, anytime. Can you turn this song up? I like it. Sure, sure. Oh, yeah. I love this song. Okay, 
we're here with my friend Caitlin Hope Bennett. Yes, she's a beautiful musician <laughs> and we're here to talk to her about her process and things like that. How are yeah. you doing? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much <laughs> for joining us today. <laughs> um, so your song um, that you're going to be playing for us later in the <laughs> podcast, how did you go about uh, it's like a very passionate, intense song. <laughs> How did you go about um, writing a piece that is like so high energy and emotion? Um, well, when I was writing this song, um, I it, I really write about kind of what I'm feeling. I feel like that's such a musician thing to say. Mm-hmm. I like talk about my feelings in my music. Um, <laughs> I know I'm so deep. Um, no, I was um, I was dating someone at the time when I wrote the song that I was. Um, I was, I was, I was super into, and, um, and, and so that's, that's what it's about, you know, um, and we, we were kind of a lot of times, like, two trains passing in the night, you know, we, we, we both had Mondays off together, and so it was, like, this time where it's, like, okay, well, we have to make it count, because this are both of our days off, and, you know, we have to just, um, make it a thing, and, but you get those times where you're, you want to see this person, but your, your schedules are so, so opposite, and so that's kind of where the song came about, where you're feeling so much for someone, but um, not being able to um, always see them when you want to. Yeah, that's really exhausting. <laughs> oh, yeah. It, oh, it was. <laughs> the pressure of making those moments count then and, like, over-amplifying those moments of, like... Yeah, and it's so funny because it, it wasn't... I, I felt like it wasn't really like that, though. It was like we just... It, it was a very relaxed situation, and so... I don't know. <laughs> I really love the line... Um, that you and I will never be we. Yeah, and uh, so, um, yeah, that line is, I, I have such an intellectual problem uh, with, uh, how do I put it, like companionship. I'm someone that's, I'm super independent, and so when I met this man who I was just so infatuated with, and um, and I guess I hadn't really felt that way. Um, you know, I, I, I met people that I've been really into, and I met people that I, like, <laughs> really really had things with, but it never quite been like this. And, um, but him and I were both people that are just super independent and that was my favorite thing. And I'm someone that's just mega independent where it's like, okay, like I want us time, but I also need like my me time. Like I'm, I'm an artist when I first and foremost, and I don't always need, um, a man looking over my shoulders, like, hi, we need to hang out and I need to be with you all the fucking time. Um, I'm curious how, when you're, like getting started with a piece, what is your like sit down? Okay, I'm gonna do this process. Look like, you know, it's so funny. I I carry a journal all the time, and so I just kind of write down piece like lines that I'm really into. Um, like I wrote this song called "Loving and Losing." Actually, um, after this whole thing ended with this man, and I had um, on my bulletin board for weeks like a whole lot to live and a whole lot left to lose. And I, and I, and I just kept looking at it. And one of my friends, I had said that to, and he was like, you need to write that down somewhere. And so it kind of depends. Um, but this particular piece, I, I, it just happened. I feel like a lot of my best pieces, like I, I don't even think about it. I'm like, I'm just going to go play guitar for a couple of hours. You know, I'm just going to sit down and then it's, it's weird. It's like, all right, I know that my capo needs to be on the first fret. Like I, and then I, and then I'm like, all right, I'm going to start with an A chord or something. And then I just start strumming or doing something and then um, it just kind of comes. It's, it's, it's a weird thing. So Like the music and the lyrics come at the same time? Yeah, it just kind of happens, and I sort of get a line. And when, Especially when I wrote this piece. This piece just sort of happened. Um, I only the, the whole piece was done, um, and then I actually just had to write the bridge, and that was it. 
um, when I was going to go play a show um, a couple months ago. And it, it, the, the piece just, it just happened. It was kind of a weird one. I mean, but that's what happens when you feel strongly for someone, you know? Yeah. It's like, sh- shit just happens. Like, you just write stuff. And I, I hadn't experienced that before. And, yeah. Do you find um, your creative process is really solitary? Or, oh, yeah. Like you said, you work <laughs> with, like, a drummer sometimes, too. And, like, you are working on this project where you're forming a band. Yeah. Then, like, challenge-wise, but... I mean, I'm so... I, like, I come in and I... I, I write weekly. I feel like my, my drummer, last couple of times we've met up, he gets, he's like, what are you, what are you doing? He's like, I, every single time you come to the table, you have like three new songs. And it's, I do, I just kind of, I mean, I, I live alone. I, I, I really enjoy my alone time. Also my time with people. I'm not totally alone all the time. <laughs> I like people. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I just, I just, I love playing music and just kind of hanging out. So it is very solitary. And then I, I go to other people, musicians that I want to collaborate with. And I'm like, hi, this is the new song. You know, tell me what you think about it. What you, if you want to do this here and there and um, if you can add anything to it. So you were saying that um, in the near future, a record might be coming out. So yeah. More about that, the name, everything we can look for. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's still kind of coming together right now. I think I'm at like seven or eight songs. I want it to be 11 and I mean, I have, I, I'm, I'm one of those people, like I have enough for like two and a half records right now. And I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I should just, compile what I have but I'm a perfectionist when it comes right down to it and so I just I'm still like searching for those last couple of pieces and so um I don't quite have a name for it yet I don't quite have it totally together yet but there are like some themes that kind of tie it together that I'm really excited about that I'm exciting to finish exploring and hopefully it'll be out by spring at the latest it'll be first in line yeah (laughs) we'll make sure to post about it on our Facebook page and everything so that People who are listening to you right now can check it out in the future. Awesome. Oh, well, thank you so much for being here with us. Thank you. (laughs) Um, So now enjoy Kaylin's piece, Hello Desire. It's not hard being alone. My shadow's the only one that's watched me grow. Then you stand in the doorway, your head held so high. You look at me, you kiss me, you whisper good lord so gently. But I don't need anyone on this open road. But goddamn, this feeling, it won't let me go.
Well, friends, that takes us to the end of our sixth issue, Sunburnt. Thank you so much for listening and being here with us. If you want to keep up with us, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We are taking submissions on scoutandbirdie.com until the end of the year. Um, The themes for all of those issues are posted online. So if you're interested in submitting to Scout and Birdie, um, go online under submissions and check it out and see what inspires you. Yeah. Uh, And we just wanted to say thank you to all of the artists who have been with us for six months and six issues. We're really, really proud of the work that we've been able to share here. And we are so grateful to be able to work with each and every one of you. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. And we'll see you next time with our September issue, Passing Notes. Bye, everyone. Bye.